unique Christmas gifts. It wasn't to the level of Aunt Bethany wrapping up her cat in National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but it sometimes seemed that way. Uh, one Christmas, she gave my brother-in-law, who you may recall is a chef, a pair of work gloves because she thought he needed to go to work. That same Christmas, she gave me a nice nautica scarf because she thought good pastors should have good scarfs. And so Mike got the work gloves, I got the scarf. The last Christmas that Eliza and I shared with her, she excitedly gave me my gift And after the previous year of it being such a nice scarf, I had such high hopes that maybe Helen had turned the corner with gift giving. Only to open the gift and find therein a baseball cap. Now, for those of you who know me and know my hair, you know that I don't like to wear baseball caps that much. But I will, under the right set of circumstances, mainly what's on the cap. On this cap, though, was not to be found a single tar heel or a terrapin. There was no Salisbury University, which was Eliza's alma mater. There wasn't even a Baltimore Oriole. No, there was a white ball cap with red with blue letters emblazoned large so that even I could see it without glasses, the letters C-I-A. And underneath those letters, written in a little smaller print, was the phrase, Christian in action. I loved the sentiment. I just didn't know what to do with the ball cap. You know, I think about that cap, though, as I think about the modern church. Because I think those two phrases, CIA and Christian in action, encapsulate the modern church. One segment of the church is active and doing, but often generally doing can be defined best as safe ministry while the other side of the church thinks themselves to be an actual spy for the CIA under deep cover almost to be defined as a sleeper cell why? because they have gone to sleep they are under such deep cover Both groups, to some extent and to some large extent in some cases, have lost what can only be described as the edginess of their faith. The walk of faith is, I believe, beloved, one that is to be lived on the edge. After all, do not the scriptures teach us in 2 Corinthians 5 
that we walk by faith, not by sight. I don't know about you. For those of you who wear glasses, I don't know if your issues are as bad as mine, but my glasses are never far from me if they are off my head. I put my glasses on in the middle of the night to get up to go to the bathroom. Why? Because walking by sight is important for the, my feet, for what any else thing I might run into. When I walk without glasses, I'm living dangerous. Faith, beloved, is like walking without glasses. We can't always see where it is that we're supposed to step next. We're supposed simply to trust God. But most of the time, all of us prefer to live our lives of faith with glasses on. And so fail to live a life of edginess. We begin this new year, I think, asking ourselves this question. How do we recapture the dangerousness of our faith, regardless of which side of Helen's baseball cap we are on? The answer, I believe, is found in two of the most famous verses of Scripture in history. Two verses that launched the modern church found in Romans chapter 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith faith for I am not ashamed Paul says beloved we must understand that when Paul pins this to the Roman church he is writing in the context of going to Rome Paul is saying that Rome is a dangerous place we might not think so but it is it is the seat of power Beloved, that ultimately can be defined as that which sent Christ to the cross. It is a Roman governor that sends Christ to the cross. And here Paul is going to go and proclaim the gospel in Rome, in the place of power. It's the place of emperor worship. And Paul is going to go and preach a gospel that says that our citizenship is not of this world, but it is of heaven. And that we are not to worship Caesar, we are to worship God. He is ultimately turning the power of the state on its head. All for the sake of proclaiming Jesus. Paul is saying here in this line, he is not to be going to be cowed he is not going to be scared he is not going to be intimidated he is not going to be ashamed beloved if we are to engage in a year of living dangerously it means going to places that you and I normally shy away from because of fear 
because of what it might mean for us, for how it might change us. It will look different for each of us, and we would be remiss if we thought that it simply meant that we are to go and engage in evangelism. For some of us, the year of living dangerously will be that we join a Sunday school class or a small group. For whatever reason, we haven't. Maybe it is fear. Maybe it's fear. I've had people say, I can't join Sunday school. I'm afraid people will know how stupid I am. Well, that's the purpose of Sunday school. A is for all of us to show how stupid we are. And B, for us not to be stupid anymore. For some of us, living dangerously will mean that we are faithful in giving a tithe and not simply an offering to God. For others, it will mean thinking critically about their beliefs and seeing how closely they align with Scripture and maybe changing what we think to align ourselves with God's Word instead of aligning ourselves with what we think we know. On any subject in our life, beloved. On any subject. And yes, for some, and at this stage in the history of the world, I believe for all of us, it will mean sharing the gospel with folks that we may consider dangerous. Though we should understand that they're not necessarily going to kill us because we share the gospel with them. They just may think that we are a little kooky because we share the gospel with them. We go and share the gospel, beloved, with people regardless of what they think of us. But most of the time we are very concerned about what they think of us and so for us to go share it with them is dangerous. Let us not forget that Paul tells us in the preceding verses of, verse, of the phrase that we are just looking at that we are bound, we are obligated to go and share the gospel. Verse 14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Beloved, this morning, are you living under the terms of your obligation? Are you living under the terms of your obligation and are you doing so, as Paul says here, eagerly? Our willingness to live under those terms and inevitably to walk in dangerous places is a necessary behavior. You know, we're under obligation for so many things. Last Sunday, I went back on my Sunday off. I went back to Enfield to preach. And someone asked Eliza, and a friend of ours asked Eliza, they said, but why, did, why did he take his Sunday to go back to preach? And Eliza said, because it's Enfield. He's under obligation to them. He's loyal to them. He loves them. Beloved, are we not more under obligation to God to overcome any fear we have to live out our obligation to go tell? 
to go to live our lives faithfully? Are you living your obligation today? We have to, though, because the Scripture tells us in the remainder of verse number 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the only means to experiencing the salvation of God. Our society does not understand that word salvation. It hasn't have a great conception of sin. So let me put it to you in a different set of terms. Jesus Christ is the only means that our society, for any individual in our society, will ever have to find true freedom, will find true hope, will find true rest. Again, I'm reminded of what Paul, what Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in you, O God. Beloved, we have the only answer that the world is looking for. The problem is they don't know that they're looking for it. And if we really and truly believed that we had the only answer, if we could show them the only place that their souls will find rest, if they, we had the answer to show them that it's truly the only place that they can find freedom and true hope and true love, then wouldn't we be working more diligently to share it with everyone? Somehow or another, it seems that we believe that there are other sources to true love, to true hope, to true peace. There aren't. And it would behoove us to start acting like there aren't and start going and living dangerously and showing people that there is something else and we know where to find it. Now, pardon me. Some of you may say, I am doing that, Pastor. I'm just not getting anywhere. And so for maybe some of us this morning, the more dangerous move for us is to switch that which we are doing. Notice verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. You know, beloved, going back to the analogy of the spy, a spy is sent to another country to create assets, to create new sources of information for the government that he is working or she is working for. You and I very often fail to be good spies because we're never cultivating new assets. Paul says here that he is going to go because there is a harvest there for him to reap. And how often is it that you and I labor in fields that have already been harvested? We were down east last week. And so we drove past many acres of farmland 
where earlier last year there had been cotton, it would have been absolutely insane of me to wander through the fields of eastern North Carolina that have already been harvested for cotton trying to get enough cotton to make a shirt. Why? Because it's already been harvested. You and I keep going back to the same fields again and again and again to harvest and it's already been harvested. And you say, no, it's not, Pastor. They haven't come to faith yet. Well then, beloved, let me give you another thought. Maybe what you need to do is just plant a cover crop for right now. A cover crop? Yes. It's where you plant something out there and you just leave it and let it lay fallow for a little bit. The scriptures are replete with God calling the children of Israel every seven years to letting the land rest. And in the year of Jubilee, every 49th year, 50th year, they're to let it rest for two years. Maybe what we need to do every now and then, beloved, is do that and move on to another harvest field and ask God to direct us to what harvest field that is as Jesus commanded us in Matthew 9, 37. When he said, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into his harvest field. How often are we doing that and saying, Lord, I'll move to a different field. I'll move to a different field. That's dangerous thoughts because we grow comfortable in the fields that we're in. We know those fields, right? It's like my grandmother's backyard. There's not a lot of places in life that I, I would say that I could walk in blind, but I pretty much know the terrain of that backyard. I know where every hole is, every root, everything in there. I wouldn't want to go playing football, say, in someone else's field. Because I knew that if we were playing football in my grandmother's backyard, if I got within about 10 steps of the sycamore tree, I had to go left if I was going to, to miss the roots or I would trip. We don't want to go play somewhere else because we think it's to our disadvantage. When really, beloved, engaging in such dangerous behavior, dangerous being in quotation marks, is where our faith grows. Verse 17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. When we are living on the edge, when we are living dangerously for God, we learn a lot, more than we can ever learn playing it safe, about the nature and character of God. Let me ask you for a moment to consider yourself with Peter on the water walking to the Lord. Who do you think learned more about the nature and character of God? Peter or the 11 who when offered to walk out to Jesus on the water stayed in the boat? Peter, right? No one else had walked on the water before, but Peter had the faith to go and walk out on the water. Peter learned more about God then than the other 11 that are remaining in the boat. 
Beloved, you and I should always be striving to grow in our faith by living on the edge. I confess to you, if there is one thing that bothers me more than anything else in life, in modern church life, it is simply that Christians are content. Content. You say, and Pastor Paul said in Philippians that, that he knew the secret to being content in all things. I'm not going there. That means resting in God. He knows the secret to, to finding rest in God. That's not where I'm going. I am saying that Christians are so content, though, that our contentment has led us into what can best be described as shallow mediocrity. We have already sang this morning this truth. Jesus loves me. We sang it knowing as we're here on the 12th day of Christmas that God loved us so much that he sent his only son to die for us. He sent his son to leave the splendor of heaven for us who had continuously fail him, who continuously forsake him, who continuously turn our backs on him. And yet he still sent his son, his prized son, to die for us. And so, beloved, how can we ever be content? How can we ever be content with just doing enough to slide by? How can we be content with mediocrity? How can we ever be content? We need to be above average. Above average. Are you above average? Are you an above average Christian? Or are you content? Our times, the times in which we live, call for above average Christians filled with a holy passion for God. Believers who are no longer content with the status quo. The world has had enough of shallow Christianity. The world has had enough of mediocre Christianity. What the world needs is a bunch of above average Christians who are sold out, passionate about God who want to go deeper in their faith instead of just at some mild superficial level who really want to be changed by their faith and who wants their faith to change them in places that they cannot imagine if we really want to reach the next generation for Christ that's what they strive for they have seen enough of mediocrity they don't want it. We will change the world. The church will change the world if it forsakes mediocrity and moves to dangerous living. Because ultimately, let us remember that what we are terming dangerous living here this morning is not really dangerous. It's faithful living. Did you notice the end of verse 17? As it is written, the righteous shall live.
by faith. If you were to read this in the original context of Habakkuk, which Paul is quoting here, you would find that the Lord has commanded Habakkuk to write it on tablets so that people could see it. Literally, the scripture says, as you run. So as you are running through life, you can see the righteous shall live by faith. Beloved, when you live by faith, it will cause you to leave behind everything to follow God. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. Many of you know I like to plan my sermons out far in advance. I'm behind right now, but I like to plan them out three or four months out. And so it was that in my last months at Enfield, I had figured out exactly what it was that I was supposed to preach and didn't realize that it was my last months. And I was literally walking into the sanctuary one afternoon at Enfield and I heard the words Habakkuk in my mind. heard that name, Habakkuk. Now I'll tell you how familiar I was with Habakkuk. I didn't even own a commentary on him. I had at that point been offered the pastorate at Sandy Branch and was pretty well content in my mind to use every excuse I had to turn them down. This phrase, Habakkuk, wouldn't leave me, and so ultimately I changed my entire sermon series that was next coming, and I was going to preach through the book of Habakkuk. And on the second sermon in that series, I was standing there preaching that morning, and I got to the phrase, and the righteous shall live by faith. And at the door that afternoon, I told Eliza, we're going to Sandy Branch. Why? Because living by faith meant that all of my excuses of why I couldn't do something had been thrown out the window. And I had to be faithful to what God had called me to. And that meant, for me, an element of danger. Beloved, understand something. To each one of us is given the call to live by faith. Not to live by faith simply for salvation, but to live by faith for every moment of every segment of our life. So ultimately, we are called to live dangerously for God. So let us be on notice today. 2020 at Grove Park, and Lord willing, 2021 and 2022 and every year thereafter will be the year of living dangerously. The question is, will you decide to do that today? Will you decide to live dangerously? Will you decide to live faithfully? And will you join in that task? Let's pray.
Father, put before us a mirror of our souls. And show us where it is that we are living contentedly. Show us where it is that we are living mediocre lives of faith. Show us, Lord, where it is that we are not living dangerously and faithfully. And through the power of your Spirit, push us to the edge. That we walk by faith and not by sight. That we may run the race that you have set before us. Seeing ever before us the righteous shall live by their faith. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.